You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We'd like to take a look at some efforts in moral theory or amongst those who want to preserve a role for moral language to accommodate the verification criterion of meaning, to show that moral language still has a place, even if it's not something we could empirically verify or falsify. First, we need to distinguish between two things, meta-ethics, as it came to be known, and normative ethics. Normative ethics used to just be called ethics. Normative ethics is just an attempt to discover what is the good for human beings, what things are right and wrong, should we base moral norms in human nature or should we base them in an attempt to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number and so forth. So there have been many different attempts to supply a theory of what's the basis of good and what makes moral claims to be true and false and so forth. That's normative ethics and practiced by Aristotle and John Stuart Mill and so forth. Metaethics, though, is just an attempt to look at the nature of moral language. And metaethics didn't really become a serious aspect of study until the 20th century and the reign of positivism. Because uh, once positivism came on the scene, it turns out that moral judgments don't have any verifiable content to them. And you remember that uh, according to Schlick, therefore, and to A.J. Ayer, this means that they're pure nonsense, or it seems anyway, they're just pure nonsense. They're not true, but, and they're not false. They make no claim at all. Given that moral language persists, people continue to make moral judgments, what on earth is going on there? What is the nature of these kinds of moral judgments? What's the function of sentences that have words in them like right, wrong, good, bad, and so forth? So the verifications criterion had determined that moral language, strictly speaking, you might say, doesn't make any assertion. If it did, we could verify it or falsify it. So if you say that giving blood is a generous act, that makes no assertion even though it looks to be an assertion. It looks like this has certain property, right? Giving blood is a good and generous action. In fact, it's not a statement. It's misleading to see it as a statement. Good, goodness, is not an empirically accessible property of actions. Neither is generosity. So moral judgments have no cognitive content. They don't make a claim. And the positivist view of moral language came to be known as non-cognitivism. Cognitivism would be the view that moral judgments do make a claim and therefore they are true or false. So non-cognitivism is the view that they don't really make a claim. They're not making any kind of assertion that could be grasped by the mind, as it were. If they could, then they would be capable of being true or false. So there were two forms, two influential forms of non-cognitivism in metaethics, two theories of what we're doing with moral language. The first one really takes its cue from A.J. Ayer and very brief remarks he had made in Language, Truth, and Logic that moral language actually just expresses our emotions or feelings about various actions or states of affairs. And this is picked up by another British philosopher, C.L. Stevenson, born in 1908. And Stevenson developed this into what came to be known as emotivism. On this analysis then, if you say something like, giving blood is good, what that really means is something like, giving blood Hooray! Or giving blood, yes! Booyah! Giving blood is great. 
it's just a positive feeling. You're just emoting in a positive way about the action of giving blood. If you say road rage is bad, then you're expressing negative emotions. It's as though you said, not road rage, with you know, a tone of horror, or road rage, boo. It's a feeling. You're coming out with your feelings about it. And so you might not always be that expressive in making a moral claim, but contrary to appearances, every time you make a moral claim, that's what you're doing. You're expressing feelings, basically. Now, in favor of this view, there's the fact that we normally do have some feelings about the things we think are right or wrong. Sometimes we're just mildly disapproving of them. Sometimes we're quite horrified by them. But we normally do have some emotions in connection with moral values, moral claims. And moral disagreements, as A.J. Ayer argues, um, moral disagreements are not always about, you might say, the evaluative aspect. Sometimes they are just disagreements over the facts. And if we come to agree on the facts, then we might come to agree about the moral judgments. So if somebody thinks that giving blood is, is losing your life essence or something like that, then they might think giving blood isn't good. But if they come to agree with us that giving blood isn't any such thing, there's no, uh, not a real hardship to you, but does a lot of good for other people and so forth, then they might come to feel the way you do about it. So moral agreement is really the agreement of how we feel about the things. And sometimes that can be reached by coming to an agreement about the facts of the matter. And this, at least, you have to say, emotivism saves moral language from the linguistic trash heap. Otherwise, it's going to go the way of language about goblins and so on, or astrology. It's just going to go down the tubes, because it in itself is utter nonsense, according to the verificationist criterion of meaning. So rather than just eliminate it altogether, at least we are retaining a kind of rule for making moral judgments. So there was some advantage, I think, to this method, to this theory of emotivism, but there were some difficulties too, of course. One of the criticisms is the claim that moral language doesn't always seem to express emotions, or not every kind of moral judgment is an expression of an emotion. Sometimes it seems we really are trying to make a truth claim. We really want to say that something's the case. Some of the critics of emotivism People like uh, Peter Geach and G.E.M. Anscum, for instance, in England, would bring our attention to the, the fact that sometimes we even draw inferences from one moral judgment to another. We might say, well, since helping others is good and giving blood is helping others, it would be good to give blood. So the third claim seems obviously to follow from the first two. But if none of them, why? Because if the first two are true, the conclusion will be true. That's a rule of logic. But if none of these claims has any truth value, then why do we think that the conclusion follows from the first two? It looks as though we are making an inference based on truth values of these judgments, when in fact, according to the positivists, they don't have any truth values. And this is just odd. It doesn't really capture what we're doing in our moral judgments. Second difficulty with emotivism is that moral claims sometimes might serve other purposes. They don't just express our feelings. Sometimes they're directing other people to act in a certain way. They recommend an action to another person. And there's a social dimension to moral language that's not very well captured by just thinking of it in terms of, you know, some kind of forms of ejaculations, like yay for courage, you know, boo for cheating. In a sense, we want to express our sort of common cultural attitude toward these things, and not just, you might say, my own personal private feelings about them. And when we pass 
our moral values or we try to pass them on to our children, it does seem like we're doing more than just expressing our own personal feelings. We also want those kids to come out with similar kinds of values to those that we ourselves have. All right now this led to another proposal then in non-cognitivism without going back to making moral judgments true or false exactly, R.M. Hare proposed a theory that came to be known as prescriptivism. And according to prescriptivism, moral language, moral judgments don't make assertions, but they do commend actions to other people. It's like the language of commands or imperatives addressed to other people, do this, don't do that. So on this view, giving blood is good is just something like, give blood, or you ought to give blood. You know, go down and give some blood sometime. Or if I say road rage is bad, it's don't give in to road rage. Avoid road rage, something like that, like the signs you see up on the highways sometimes. Now the advantages of treating moral language in this way as directive is that this captures better the social dimension of moral language, right? That these are our, our joint recommendations and so forth. They don't just have to be my private attitude toward road rage or smoking or something like that. They're a whole cultural attitude against smoking. Thanks for not smoking. So they express, they're supposed to express a kind of common feeling, right, in the culture about pro and con, uh, for and against certain kinds of behavior and so forth. Um, secondly, prescriptivism could show why moral education has a kind of priority in the moral life and in the way we use moral language, that part of it is about teaching people, especially younger people, how they're expected to behave, socializing them and so forth. So if we think of moral language primarily in terms of giving orders, directions, advice, and so forth, then we can show why moral education is so central. And like emotivism, of course, it still preserves some rule for moral judgments in an age of positivism, when moral terms, values, and so forth are in danger of being eliminated altogether from a realm of discourse or serious intellectual discourse. But there are difficulties for prescriptivism too. One is the same as for emotivism, that is, it doesn't allow for any truth values for these statements because commands are not true or false. If somebody says, pay your taxes, you can't just say false, and you don't say true to it. I mean, you can follow it or not, but it's neither true nor false. It's an inappropriate reaction to a command. It's just an attempt to influence behavior and so forth, so it's neither true nor false. All right, so there again, if I say something like, well, if cheating on your taxes is wrong, it's still wrong even if you're not being audited by the IRS. And that seems to follow, right? I'm making a claim about what truth follows from what other truth. But of course, if there's no truth values here, then I can't see why one would follow from the other one. They're both directives, and directives don't seem to follow from other directives. There's no logical connection there between two different directives or commands. Furthermore, it's gonna be very hard on this view to translate moral judgments about people in the past that are no longer here to hear our advice. So if I say, for instance, you know, Hitler was an evil man, what does this mean? Is it addressed to Hitler? Don't be like that? That seems odd. It's a little ineffective anyway. Is it addressed to people today? When I say Hitler was really evil, am I really just saying, you should not be like Hitler? So I'm addressing this kind of imaginary audience that may overhear my remark at some point. But that doesn't seem right either, right? It seems like I'm really trying to say something about Hitler. 
and what he did and so forth. So none of this seems all that satisfying as a, a translation for some of our judgments. It's also kind of troubling in terms of trying to translate general claims, say about uh, whole categories. Justice has equality as a necessary aspect of it. Well, what on earth is that? How does that translate into a command? Justice includes equality. There's no way to translate it into command that I can think of. Or if I say courage is a virtue, it just seems to classify something. So if it's not true or false, then what is it exactly? It's not a command. It's not, I'm, not, I'm either saying be courageous or don't be courageous. I mean, unless you already know that I think you should be virtuous, but even then, if I say, well, you should be virtuous, courage is a virtue, so you should try to be more courageous. That's, again, a kind of argument, a syllogism. And if, this, if the claims have no truth values, there's no reason why that should follow and so forth. So all the versions of non-cognitivism, I think, were left with this difficulty of, that they didn't really seem to capture very well what, in fact, is going on when we try to say something's good or bad, right or wrong, and so forth. It was an effort to save moral language within the sort of straight jacket of verification and criterion of meaning. And in that sense, it was kind of admirable, I suppose. But I think it was really a failure in the sense that it really did not capture very much about our moral commitments and so forth. Now, positivism, as I've said, was dominant up until about the 19, late 50s and early 1960s when it began to unravel. And we'll talk about that unraveling later on in a couple of lessons from now. But after positivism crumbled, what happened with respect to moral theory? I will say something very briefly about that. It's a topic of another course, and so I won't go into it in detail here. But two kinds of things, I think, happened. One was there was a kind of uh, revival or a comeback for normative ethics, again, with the publication of John Rawls' book, A Theory of Justice. It was a very influential book. The title alone, I think, makes a statement. Rawls says, I'm going to offer a theory about justice. Nothing about moral language there. Right? It's not meta-ethics anymore. It's, it's about justice. It's about a moral concept and what's involved in justice. It's not an analysis of our language, the meaning that claims about justice have, and so forth. It's an attempt to figure out well, what are the key elements in this concept of justice. Equality, respect for other people, rights, fairness, and so forth. What, what's the most important concept within those? and how do the others fit with that, and so forth. And then Rawls thought your project should be, you get a theory, actually didn't appeal to common sense, he didn't appeal to observation statements, uh, just analyzing the concept, and then you try to build a kind of case for why this is the right concept, the right theory of justice, theory of justice that we should all adopt, would be his, because it captures the important elements in the concept of justice. Now, it turns out that in the end, although this sounds like another a bold return, you might say, to the earlier project in ethics, the earlier type of ethical project, Rawls tend to qualify it a bit by saying the theory of justice he's offering is the one that is revealed in our contemporary institutions and cultural manifestations and so forth. In our political setup today, given our history, our traditions and the like, we're a liberal society, so this is our conception of justice that he's working out here that's adequate for us, right? It has to capture what we think is central and important. It doesn't have to be the true theory of justice in the sense that this is in the essence of justice, you might say, in the way that Socrates wanted to capture the essence of piety in his conversation with Euthyphro. It's more relative, you might say, to our own uh, cultural presuppositions and assumptions. 
So it is a theory of justice for us, as it were, for liberal democracies. Now, in addition to Rawls' approach, there have been some other directions taken in um, ethics since the 1960s. One track is a kind of revival of the, of the moral theory known as consequentialism, which utilitarianism would be a form of consequentialism. Consequentialism judges acts to be right or wrong depending on their overall results or effects of the action, what comes out of it. In the case of utility, it was, does this, does it boost the overall amount of utility in the world or not? Does it increase pleasure and minimize pain and so on? More recent theories, consequentialist theories, will ask whether the action satisfies the maximum number of desires. Does it fulfill the greatest number of things people seem to want? Whatever that is, maybe they don't want pleasure. They might be really weird, maybe they want pain. But whatever they want, if we're maximizing that, then we're doing as well as we can by them, as it were. That's the best action, it would be the one that gives people, satisfies the, the most uh, desires. The difference between, you might say, uh, consequentialism today and consequentialism of the past in Jeremy Bentham or John Stuart Mill is that um, consequentialism, consequentialism is often put forward not as a sober truth about morality or something like that, but as kind of practically useful. Like this will be helpful in you know, arguing for certain policies or deciding what we should do with regard to legislation and the like would be to just see if we're, you know, basically satisfying as many desires of the people as we can. Not trying to judge, well, are, there, are some of these good and some of these bad desires? What desires best promote human flourishing or anything like that? We're just trying to figure out some method or other for getting along, doing things we need to do, making laws and the like and this method might help us out. So it's not necessarily revived, you might say, with the same gusto or the same depth as it originally was put forward. Um, in, a, in a kind of similar way, there's a revival of Kant's moral philosophy, Immanuel Kant, who um, focused on the will as the important uh, thing in morality, willing things, willing the good for its own sake, following the moral law because it's rational, it's the right thing to do, and Kant's major moral norm, his absolute moral norm, was sometimes expressed as a categorical imperative. Act in such a way that you could will the principle of your action to be a universal principle for all humankind. I could want everybody else to act on the same principle I'm acting on now. Consistently want that. And so this principle gave a kind of substantive, uh, the attempt was anyway, to give a kind of substantive further help on what moral norms you should adopt. Kant was very strict about things like honesty, for instance. Always be wrong to tell a lie, but because I can't consistently wish that, that in our society other people would lie to me from time to time when it was convenient for them. It's wrong to uh, harm innocent people, it's wrong to take their possessions, and so on. So it was supposed to issue in that, that one categorical imperative was supposed to entail or imply many other more substantive moral claims. The recent versions of Kantianism don't do that. They no longer defend the categorical imperative as the sort of fundamental principle of morality, as the only rational principle, but they do preserve Kant's emphasis on the will, and especially his emphasis on autonomy. In a sense, choosing the moral law oneself. So I now become, in the literal meaning of autonomy, a law to myself. I make up my own rules. And um, whichever ones I choose are fine, 
there may be a suggestion that I should stay consistent with my own choices, but there is no way, there's no uh, absolutely objective way of deciding which one of these moral norms is the right one, or which ones are better than others. If I've uh, chosen, the main thing is that I am doing what I, I should try to maximize my own autonomy and the autonomy of everybody around me because it's a liberal society. So I should make sure everybody can, as much as possible, do whatever they want to do. Finally, there's been a kind of revival of a version of virtue ethics of the sort you find in Aristotle, for example, and Thomas Aquinas. Sometimes it's um, revived without any kind of Aristotelian foundations. In fact, normally it, it doesn't explicitly appeal to any foundations in the sense of, well, given human nature, this is what it means for human beings to flourish or to be perfected, and these are the, the qualities, that, the virtues that will perfect us. There's no appeal to human nature, because human nature is a concept that, as we've seen, the positivists had little use for, had total contempt for. It's been almost a term of abuse in philosophy to say that somebody is committed to essentialism, that there is something in common, let's say, there's an essence of human beings, or there's something in common between all human beings. I think that's still belief of common sense, or judgment of common sense, but it's, it's a really difficult I mean, even if you believe it, you can't say that you're committed to essentialism. It's just um, a non-starter. So rather than start with human nature or something that controversial, something in terms of metaphysical foundations, you could just try to justify uh, appeal to virtues in other ways. You could say that if we're trying to acquire, think of the moral life as an attempt to acquire virtues and stable virtues and so forth, has a lot of explanatory power, it's, um, it's appealing to common sense, it captures a lot of our moral language, it would explain why we do think that it's good to be generous, not just to, to give money, but to be generous. In fact, even if you don't have any money to give, it's still good to be generous of heart and so forth. Why do we say that? Well, because uh, we think the vir that having certain virtues, dispositions and so forth is a valuable thing. We also might try to ground this in, just in desires, let's say, rather than human nature, to say, well, this is how we want other people to treat us. But normally, the metaphysical foundations, as it were, what's behind moral values of the moral life is set aside, maybe temporarily, maybe indefinitely. It's fairly deliberately ignored, you might say, because there's always the fear that if you bring that in, you're going to have to take on the challenge of defending this now, in an era in which, even though positivism has, well, I like to say it's died, I don't think that's quite accurate, but even though the verification criterion eventually fell apart and was abandoned, we live in a philosophical culture, an intellectual culture, I think, that is over which it still hovers. So you're better off in philosophy if you don't have to make too many substantive claims. You just talk about the moral claims themselves, you try to come up with some ways of, of just getting started and then you go for it. You don't try, you can show the interrelationships between these concepts, but you don't have to show what their ultimate foundations would be. You don't ground them in the will of God, you don't ground them in intuition, as G.E. Moore tried to do, you don't ground them in human nature, or anything of that sort, or any empirical claims about, well, we're animals, so we seek pleasure and avoid pain. I mean, almost all the substantive moral theories had a foundation, a sort of metaphysical foundation for what they wanted to say in ethics. Kant mostly focuses on our rationality. 
Other philosophers have chosen other foundations. But nowadays I think you will find that there's a kind of return to discussion of many of these same things, even to some of the same theories. But it has an, an air of unreality about it in a sense because there's this, a vagueness or even a deliberate ignoring of what the metaphysical foundations of these claims would be. And therefore hard to know how I would pick one over another one or how I'd defend one over another one. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.